Christmas 1914, the first Christmas of the First World War, and an event that one British soldier at the time described as a day unique in the world's history. There are many accounts of that Christmas on the front line and many disputes about what really happened. But what we do know is that British and German soldiers in various places put down their weapons. They exchanged simple gifts, food rations and cigarettes. They sang Christmas carols, buried their dead, and some even kicked a football around, creating what became known as the Christmas truce, not far from where I'm standing now, near the historical front line just outside Ypres in Belgium. I'm Nelva Hedayat, and in this Christmas edition of Things Unseen, I'll be exploring those astonishing events of 1914 and what they mean today. <laughs> An early match at the Christmas Truce International Youth Tournament at Ypres is already underway on this very cold December day. It's England versus Germany. Well, Liverpool playing Borussia Mönchengladbach on a brand new pitch behind me. There are several pitches out here. Kids playing from England, Scotland, Germany, Austria, France and Belgium. Parents are standing nervously on the sidelines cheering their teams on. And it's 1-0 to Liverpool. With me now is Jed Roddy, the Premier League's Director of Youth. Jed, what is it that you're staging here over the weekend? We run the tournament with 11-year-old boys. And the reason we come here just before Christmas is because actually 100 years ago this year, British and German troops came out from the trenches and met in no man's land and some of them played football together. And so what we've been doing over the last few years is using the inspiration of that story. First and foremost, it's about giving them a great football education. But we also want them to understand that maybe there's more to football as well in terms of their wider education. What do you hope that they take away from this? They arrived here a couple of days ago now and we took them out around Flanders Fields and we showed them the trenches where the battles took place. And last night all of the boys went to the Menham Gate where each evening at 8 o'clock the last post is played and what we hope is that this experience will be a real special one for them. So for one or two of them, you know, they'll go on and they'll play in the Premier League, they'll play for their nations, maybe in the World Cup, but that will be absolutely the minority. The vast majority of these children will go on to other jobs in other walks of life. So we hope that in whatever it is they do, the one thing they do take with them is this message of peace and reconciliation. And that's a goal for Liverpool. Standing here watching these children playing football, the Germans and the English, along with a whole host of other nationalities, it's quite hard to imagine that 100 years ago they would have been on opposite sides battling each other. In the lunchtime queue, it's quite clear that the boys from Liverpool are taking away more than a victory over their German opponents. We, um, we won 5-2 when we play as well. So why do you guys think you're here today then? It's about like when we come together in no man's land in Christmas time and we play the game of football, like we're redoing it for them. And did you go to the trenches yesterday or are you going to go today? Yeah, we went, yeah. we went to the trenches yesterday and this man, he showed us around and he wore all his soldier stuff. And how did you feel when you were seeing stuff like that? When we were walking through them, it was really narrow, so 
I don't like we're a million of them in it. It must have been like really claustrophobic for them. I felt cold because all the rain and all that, and you had to do it for many years or months. Despite the German defeat on the pitch, this boy from München Gladbach has clearly got the message of why his team are here. I don't want there to be another war. I don't want people having to fight each other again. I think it's really good that we're all coming together and making friends. We want to be a, a town of peace. So coming with this tournament here in Ypres is fantastic. Jeff Verschuren is the first deputy mayor of Ypres, which sits at the western corner of Belgium and suffered greatly throughout World War I. Ypres has two meanings. The city has been completely destroyed in the war, and so it's a symbol of devastation, what the war can do to a city and to the people who live there. And it's also the city who has chosen to rebuild itself. So we also kind of symbol for the resurrection, the belief in the future, the belief in the young people to go forward. To reinforce the message of the Christmas truce, the Premier League has laid on a reenactment for the young footballers. What do you think of that, Fritz? Oh, he liked it. I'm dying for a drink. We haven't got any. Have you got some? Snaps. Chuck it over. I promise I'll send it back. <laughs> but couldn't such a display of good humour send the children away with a romanticised idea of the Christmas truce? Jed Roddy. That's always a danger. And that's why we're keen to balance it with some of the realities, you know, names etched onto the Menim Gate. And I think when the boys stand there and see that, there's not a lot of romanticism about that. But you know, on the other side of it, people have said to me, well, oh, this thing's just a myth. Well, the truce wasn't a myth. The truce was a bunch of young men who saw it within themselves to get out of their trenches on Christmas Day 1914 and shake hands in the middle of a dreadful war, I think that's worth celebrating. That's an affirmation of peace and life over death. If we can't celebrate that, then, then there's something quite wrong. Few could argue with the purpose of such an event. But is it really all based on historical fact? Alan Cleaver and a fellow enthusiast have collected over 300 letters from soldiers who witnessed the Christmas truce and made them available on a dedicated website. So I asked him... Do these letters talk of a football match in the proper sense of the word, in no man's land outside Ypres? Our letters talk about football matches being played, but they're infuriatingly ambiguous because they don't say necessarily that the Germans took part. They say, we then played a game of football. But does that mean they played it just between themselves? Or did they involve the Germans? Other letters talk about the British or Allies playing football and the Germans just being interested spectators. I think the centenary, though, has produced a number of other personal letters and diaries, which probably make it almost conclusive that a, a football match of some sort did take place. The score, well, the, I think there was a joke going around at the time on the Western Front that the Germans won 3-2. I don't think any score was kept if a, if a match was played, so we'll call it a draw. A slightly different account comes from Andrew Hamilton, a retired history teacher whose grandfather, Captain Robert Hamilton, was serving with the 1st Battalion Royal Warwicks. 
They were stationed in the trenches near Plugstert Wood, or Plug Street, as it became known by the British soldiers, having relieved the Royal Dublin Fusiliers on Christmas Eve. Captain Hamilton kept a little diary in his top pocket. Andrew read for me the entry for Christmas Day, written in his grandfather's perfect copper plate writing. A day unique in the world's history. I met their officer and we arranged a local armistice for 48 hours. As far as I can gather, this effort of ours extended itself throughout the whole line as far as we could hear. The soldiers on both sides met in their hundreds and exchanged greetings and gifts. A company would have played the 134th Saxon Corps tomorrow, that's at football, only that the company was relieved. So that's the essence of what he had to say about Christmas Day. And he mentions that there would have been a football match the next day, which is interesting because it's absolutely clear that there wasn't an international football match. There was, however, a kick around, and there's been plenty of evidence to suggest that. For example, an account from a soldier in the London Rifle Brigade who were based not far away who said the Germans watched they were sort of interested onlookers. And I'm quite sure some Royal Warwicks, for a joke, sort of kicked the ball at the Germans to see what might happen. If playing football during the Christmas truce was a predominantly British affair, there was a reason for it, says German military historian Rob Schaefer. He's the author of the forthcoming book Fritz and Tommy, Across the Barbed Wire. Football in itself was not popular in Germany in 1914. The opposite was the case. So most German youngsters wouldn't have been used to play football and they wouldn't have been very excited about it. It was not thought to be a sport for men. Is that so? Yes. In Imperial Germany, a man did uh, athletics, he did uh, gymnastics and he strengthened his body for war. It was a military society. So there was fencing, horse riding, physical exercise. This was something that was very, very important and very popular. Football was seen to be a girl sport. I did not expect that to be (laughs) the answer. How very interesting. So in fact, it's very possible that actually the Germans were a bit perplexed. Why are you bringing this one to a sort of a war field? Yes. In the early days of the war, up until... I think about mid-1915, there are instances where leather balls of all kind were confiscated by the regiment to make boots from the leather, so the soldiers weren't even allowed to have a leather ball. Rob Schaefer. For Rebecca Dawkins, a flight attendant from Crawley, the Christmas truce is intensely personal. Her great-grandfather, Harry Hackett, was born in Staffordshire in 1891 and unusually for a black country boy of the time, was in the Grenadier Guards. She discovered that he'd taken part in the Christmas truce when she and her family found a box of old letters. So he went up into the attic and there was all these boxes of these letters that were written from my great-grandpa, from Harry, written to Olive, who was his sweetheart, and they were then engaged and then later married. Amazingly, this is how we found out that he had taken part in it. He actually sent the postcard home to Olive and he sent it with the names of the German soldiers who he'd spoken to and met that day, which is just amazing. So, uh, you know, to me, I think Harry realised that he was part of a kind of fairly momental part of the, of the war up to that point because I don't think he would have written that postcard with the names of these German soldiers had he not thought this is an important event. This is something different to how the war has gone for every other day that we've been here. It's Christmas Day. 
we're wishing we were at home, they're wishing they were at home. And it is a completely different day to any other day that they've been there. It was momentous. It was, definitely, yeah. So and what I, did I he think write? He You've got the postcard there, yeah, so we, we have the postcard. It says, Dear O, I'm sending you this postcard with two of the German soldiers' addresses on, which I got on Boxing Day. I suppose you saw in the papers about us going across, out of the trenches and having a word or two together. Hope you are well as it leaves me at present with love from Harry. And so it's been stamped and censored. And um, so the names of the German soldiers was Rudolf Massoff from Bad Permont. My accent is obviously terrible. And the other one was Ernest something Byfield. Um, not really too sure because the post office stamp actually covered that one up. So it's a bit difficult to read that one. But that's remarkable to yeah, think that across trenches, across the battleground, no man's land, your great grandfather had the ability or made the time to get to know two Germans. Yes, exactly. He must have spoken to them for quite a while to get their names and to you know get the spellings right and everything and write it all down. And yeah, he must have maybe had a drink with them. Maybe they shared some Christmas pudding. I mean, I'm not sure. <laughs> but it's a nice idea to think that they did, that they had a drink together. Sadly, Rebecca's great-grandfather Harry was killed at the age of 26, seven months before the end of the war. His son, Emma's grandfather, was born just four months earlier. Most people think of the Christmas truce as something started by ordinary soldiers like Harry. But Andrew Hamilton's grandfather, Robert, an officer, was also involved. When his regiment relieved the Royal Dublin Fusiliers on Christmas Eve, they told him that the Germans wanted to talk to him. He was then, I think, faced a huge dilemma because... They were making it clear that they wanted to meet an officer. And he was thinking, I'm a professional soldier. I'm not trained and employed to fraternise with the enemy. But at the same time, his men must have been saying to him, go on, sir, you know, go out there and meet a German soldier. And let's have a break from all this. So, you know, what on earth was he going to do? Well, the, the sort of banter between the trenches started and there was carol singing and musical instruments played, the Germans played concertinas and the Royal Warwicks had mouth organs. So it must have been an extraordinary noise. And eventually the Germans insisted that somebody go out and meet one of their officers. Obviously he was wondering, you know, what am I going to do here? And then his ex-Batman, Private Gregory, who I'm ashamed to say he had sacked because he couldn't make anything that remotely tasted like a cup of tea, offered to, to go out into no man's land, which... He did, but my grandfather warned him, you do so at your own risk. So Gregory went out there and met a couple of Germans, one of whom was armed. My grandfather wrote in his diary, typically German. Gregory, of course, was unarmed, which was typically British. He came back saying that the Germans wanted my grandfather to meet one of their officers at dawn unarmed which he did. And as soon as he'd sh shaken hands with his uh, opposing German officer, that was the signal, he wrote, for the soldiers on both sides just to very slowly, I guess, and very sort of suspiciously move towards each other into no man's land. And of course, there have been dead bodies out in no man's land for up to seven weeks. And we certainly found accounts of how when the wind was in the wrong direction, the stench was absolutely abysmal. So they, both sides, mucked in together. The Germans buried British soldiers and vice versa. So it was a quite extraordinary 
day uh, and it continued for a while. But there was still that suspicion because my grandfather on Christmas Day said, um, I doubled the sentries after midnight. And on Boxing Day, he said, I hope that they're not cooking some devilish plot. For Andrew Hamilton, there's still a living connection to this part of history through his grandfather's writings. But how can the message of the Christmas truce be brought to life for primary school children several generations further down the line? I took a trip to Gummersall near Leeds to find out. The children of Gummersall Primary School are preparing for a day off curriculum. They've made clay poppies, painted canvases and learned songs in preparation for the packed day ahead. It's Remembrance Day and on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, the school is observing a minute of silence in honour of the fallen. Almighty God, this day I pray for peace, that the world may live for peace, the frightened and lonely would know your peace, that people and rulers would seek peace, and that that peace might begin here with me. Amen. Everybody thought the war would be over by Christmas. When December came, it looked like it was going to be a very different story. And the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, got quite worried. And he said, May the guns fall silent, at least upon the night the angels sang. Now, when he said, May the guns fall silent, at least upon the night the angels sang, which night do you think he was talking about? Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, that's right. So the guns did fall silent on Christmas Eve. The soldiers started singing. The German soldiers started singing first. They were at one side and the British soldiers were on the other side. Any idea what we call the piece of land in the middle of the trenches? Um, is it called No Man's Land? That's right, it's called No Man's Land, that's right. My name's Hilary Robinson. I'm a children's author, primarily writing children's picture books. The reason I'm at Gomersall Primary School today is that they've invited me in for their day of remembrance. The book that you've written, the one that you've been reading from today, The Christmas Truce, why did you decide to focus on that? It's one of the stories that will appeal to younger children and I was very conscious of the fact that younger children are in danger of missing out. There's an enormous amount being done for older children taking them back to the battlefields and uh, visiting the graves and so on. But very small children, very little has been done for them. And The Christmas Truce was a beautiful story. It was an expression of humanity amongst real tragedy. But how much of it do you think the four, five, six-year-olds understand? Children understand the concept of friendship. From a tiny age, they understand what friendship is about. They understand that if people are friends together, there is less likely to be conflict. They understand that. 
So that is one of the main reasons why they engage with the concept of the Christmas truce. Then learning all the little details about how they shared this and that and everything else, you know, that just really makes it a magical story for them, rooted in reality, and that can only be a good thing. The Christmas truce is when all the soldiers come together at Christmas and uh, have a game of football. I think it was a special occasion because they had enough of fighting and they just wanted peace for a while. Must have felt weird in a way. They wouldn't really want to lose it because it would almost give them an advantage. You might not know what is happening because you might think it was a trap, but they was actually trying to say peace. I think it's really good. But then they went back to war next day. The Germans, they sang Silent Night in German. And they made friends with the British soldiers. I think it's quite sad because two people made friends with other two people and they have to fight again. And what if they got killed? That would be sad. What do you think the Christmas truce says to us? You don't have to fight, you can just be friends. On Christmas Eve, put all your differences aside with maybe someone you don't like or someone who you don't really get on with and just come together. I think the best bit is where the Germans start singing Silent Night in the trenches and they light all the trenches up. I think it is special because there's been these two enemies and then some that just, they make friends again. And I just like the story. The Christmas truce has been commemorated in recent weeks up and down the country. Through football matches, a new memorial in Staffordshire unveiled by Prince William, a play performed by the Royal Shakespeare Company and many other events. Dr Emma Hanna, a historian at Greenwich University, is a specialist in the cultural history of the Great War. She argues that we've mythologised the Christmas truce. I think the whole myth of the Christmas truce, because that's what it is to us in British culture, tells us more about us than it does about the history of the First World War and, and the series of truces that took place. If we look at ideas about the truce in, in British culture in representations of the First World War, you don't really see many at all, really, until the 1980s, about the time of the Falklands War. I think this goes back to a misunderstanding of what the war was actually for. I mean, certainly after the Second World War, which was seen as a good war against the ultimate evil of the, of the Nazis, after the Second World War, the memory of the First World War 
changes. No one can remember why it started. All anyone can remember are the tens of thousands of memorials that were built in Britain in the interwar period and the oft-quoted figure of one million dead from the British Empire. And No one can really remember why it happened, particularly once you get to the 1960s where very much the narrative of mud, blood and poetry starts to take over. So the idea of the Christmas truce being one period which ended the early part of the First World War before the war turned into a very different conflict of the use of gas, of much higher casualty rates, of civilian soldiers and of conscription. The Christmas truce is the one last time where humanity shone through in a very inhumane event. And the truce has recently become part of popular culture most controversially a much-discussed Christmas ad by a national supermarket. So how ethical is it to use such an event for commercial ends? Alan Cleaver, who's collected all those letters from soldiers who witnessed the Christmas truce, is unconcerned. I suppose everybody uses you know, the Christmas story and nativity for all sorts of commercial reasons. It's obvious from the tweets and Facebook messages from young people in Britain and abroad that many of them don't realise this was a true event and they talk about it and say, oh, why did Sainsbury's, you know, make up this fictional event? And others say to them, no, it, it really did happen. And it would be terrifying if after 100 years, you know, the next generation were unaware that the Christmas truce had happened and dismissed it as some sort of urban myth. So if nothing else, it's raised public awareness. Historian Emma Hanna regards the ad as another example of how the story of the Christmas truce has been used for different purposes. I think there's nothing wrong with it. I can completely understand why someone like Paul McCartney, for instance, who's committed, you know, pacifist, anti-war campaigner, used elements of the Christmas truce in his Pipes of Peace video. It's understandable. I think some of my colleagues have more of a problem with you know, a national supermarket using a very distilled version of the Christmas truth myth for their campaign. But on the other hand, that campaign is for the British Legion, who do brilliant work and have done since the early 1920s. But looking beyond popular culture at the hard facts, how accurate are our perceptions of the Christmas truce? Emma Hannah again. What didn't happen is there wasn't one uniform truce all the way on the British sector of the line. It's only happened around places of what the Tommies called Plug Street, Pleague Steart Wood, in the South Eep salient. There were patches. And interestingly, it only tended to happen where British soldiers were facing Saxon regiments of the German army. Again, there's anecdotal evidence of soldiers saying, well, we're Anglo-Saxons, you're Saxons. And there was some sort of affinity between them there. Was there really a Christmas tree that the Germans put out with candles on it? Probably, yes. Again, there's a lot of evidence. I know it sounds really outlandish that on the Western Front there'd be Christmas trees, but the Christmas tree uh, of what the Germans would call the Tannenbaum was very, very prominent in their culture. And as we know, it was Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, who bought the Christmas tree to Britain in the 19th century. So this idea of a Christmas tree in German culture was very pervasive and it was entirely natural for them, especially in a wooded area around Plug Street. You know, the Western Front didn't look like the wasted 
landscape that we're used to from Paul Nash paintings. In 1914, it was still very woody. The trenches had only just been dug. It was a war of movement until December 1914. So it was very natural for Germans to decorate trees, to sing hymns. It's what they did. We tend to think about the Christmas truce or truces as something that ordinary soldiers sort of on the front line started. Is that true? It certainly has elements of truth. What is particularly interesting to me, and it surprised me before I actually looked into this, is that the British High Command were actually worried that these truces would happen in the first week of December 1914. General Sir Horace Smith Dorian, who was commander of that sector of the British line, was a very experienced soldier, and he actually issues an order in the first week of December saying that he's concerned that the troops aren't being offensive enough, that they might be getting too comfortable, that weather conditions were worsening, Christmas was coming up, and against all thinking at the beginning of the war that it would be over by Christmas, it quite plainly wasn't going to be over by Christmas. So he was very concerned that the soldiers would not be continuing to fight over the Christmas period. So he issues an order that we have, it's in the National Archives, to say at no possible point should the soldiers be allowed to do anything other than fight the Germans. And what about the Silent Night Carol? Was it really sung? Alan Cleaver again. We've not yet found in our letters a description of Silent Night being sung, but we know from a soldier who was interviewed after World War I who'd taken part in the truce that Silent Night was sung, but it was a, a carol that was almost unknown in Britain at the time in 1914. In fact, it was probably the truce which sparked interest in, in Silent Night as a carol. The carols and hymns that were sung included perhaps the more popular ones of uh, the first Noel, there was O Come All Ye Faithful, there were music hall numbers like uh, My Little Grey Home in the West and uh, there were hymns, there were even classical numbers, there were classical musicians there who'd smuggled violins or piccolos and so Handel's Largo was played. So we've been able through the letters to get a almost a concert programme of the songs that were sung during the truce. With the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem But of course there was opposition back home, both in Blighty and in Germany. Alan Cleaver. After the truce took place, there was at first great excitement in Britain that, you know, this event had happened and it was on the front page of the national newspapers. There was even photographs, you know, the, the box brownie had made an appearance by then. So there were photographs of the soldiers. And at first the reaction was, oh, gosh, isn't this amazing? You know, what a remarkable event. But very quickly, of course, the British public were realising, well, we're supposed to be defeating the Germans and they're doing all these horrible things in Belgium and, you know, we need to get back to war. And there's certainly one letter we've come across from a Scottish gentleman who's saying about fie on ye Scotsmen that you would sell your boasted Highland pride for a few souvenirs. German historian Rob Schaefer has an account of a German soldier who got into trouble with his father for fraternising with the enemy. 
the son sent four letters home written during the Christmas truth and he describes what happened. He told his parents, we got out of the trenches, met with some uh, British NCOs or English NCOs, Scotsmen. He describes the uniforms they are wearing and they didn't wear skirts, which he's quite surprised about. We don't have the letter his father sent back, but from the answer of the son, you can see that his father heavily rebuked him for fraternizing with the English. And in his last letter, the son writes home, I'm very sorry, but please let me explain. All my officers went there, so they started it and we just followed. And I didn't uh, talk about military details with the enemy. We just talked about domestic stuff. Standing here on this very cold December day, just opposite Plug Street Wood near Ypres. I can feel just a little bit of what those soldiers must have felt. It's bitterly cold. There's a white crystal sheet of frost covering almost everything. I've asked local guide Francois Mikkelberg to join me. Francois, I can see sort of the British front line. I mean, this is it. This is where 100 years ago the front line was, where, where everything kind of stopped on Christmas Day. Where would the German line be? Is it, is it terribly far back from where we are? I mean, can I see it? Yes, we can see. If you look this farm, perhaps 400 metres, 500 metres, it is the German line. And here, if you see the field, just 150 metres, it is the British line. And just on this field, there is a place of the kickabout of the football game right between over there. yeah just off here i mean they are very close i'm trying to walk to one of the trenches that have been set up for visitors to the memorial to see and it's uh, it's very muddy it's very wet oh there's frost everywhere i can't imagine what it must be like to just fight in conditions like this oh stuck right in on December the 8th, my grandfather wrote, the trenches are in the most deplorable condition. Everyone is over the ankles in liquid mud and the communication trenches over the knees. Most of the dugouts have fallen in. Those that hadn't were full of water. Poor British Tommy, but one and all, declared that if the Germans could stand it, surely they could. December the 9th, more rain and so more misery, and I'm afraid there will be a lot of sickness. It is quite impossible to do anything whatever to the trenches or parapets. Planks, boards and sandbags are sent up each night to the crossroads in Plug Street Wood, and needless to say, they don't remain there long. December the 10th, more rain. The more it rains, the more the men whistle. I wonder what they think of to whistle. All the planks in the trenches which rested on piles of sandbags have disappeared beneath the mud. Oh dear. So there we are. These are the trenches that have been built just for visitors to see, really. I mean, they look very well made. I imagine that this is not what the professional soldiers coming here in 1914 would have experienced. But it just gives you a sense of it, a feel of the place. It's quite harrowing to imagine that men had to live here. Water everywhere, rain, mud, much like where I'm standing now, seeping into shoes and just a very difficult place to be. Well, that racket you can hear in the background is actually a racetrack and it's about 
three kilometres away from where I'm standing now. And it just gives you a sense of how well sound travels here. So I can imagine completely that when the Germans and the British were singing the Christmas carols, were singing Silent Night, that they would very much be able to hear each other, just like I can hear that racket in the background now. It's very hard sometimes to even imagine that the atrocities of the First World War happened where we are standing. Francois, what kind of an impact did the war have on Ypres, on this area? Yes, there is, of course, there is an impact. For me, my first objective, it is remember. For all the victims, for all the war, and perhaps this little place of humanity of the Christmas truce here, perhaps it is an appeal for the future before the war. It is perhaps possible to work, to work very hard, for there is no war. It is a message. A message of peace from a hundred years ago. But is it one that can make a difference today? I'm currently located in a village town uh, called Bergenhona, which is adjacent to the Belsenbergen concentration camp in northern Germany. The Reverend Stephen Hancock is chaplain to the British 7th Armoured Brigade based in Germany. Close to me is a German panzer brigade and the German military chaplain there, Herr Reller, and I got together earlier this year when I arrived to make an acquaintance and uh, he initially invited me to go to Ypres in Belgium to lay a wreath with him. But then I said to him in, in a kind of reciprocal agreement, well, on Christmas Day, would you like to come and play football with us? And he was a bit bemused and I explained the whole history behind it. And he ran it up his chain of command and they came down and said, yes, we would. So on Christmas Day, we will be playing football against the Germans, British servicemen and women, to reenact the event of 100 years ago with the church service to begin with, then the football match, and then we're all gathering together and we're serving them a traditional British Christmas meal. So, Chaplin, what are our chances? Oh, no, we'll get stuffed. They're Germans. They play better football than us. Elsewhere, Christians have picked up the Christmas truce as a vehicle to spread the Christmas message among sports supporters who might not normally go to church. Like here, at a large-scale event at Selhurst Park Stadium, the home of Crystal Palace Football Club. It's been amazing to see the amount of premiership clubs that are going to do this. Roy Crown is the director of HOPE, the initiative organising the Silent Night Stadium carol events. I think it's been fascinating to see the way championship clubs and non-league clubs, you know, we know of Aldershot, Farnborough, Workingham, small clubs, where the MPs coming along, the mayors coming along, they're all saying, hey, we want to do this. Would you please give a really warm welcome to the manager of Crystal Palace Football Club, Neil Warnock, the gaffer. Good evening, everybody. It's lovely to see the turnout, and I think Christmas is so special. I always remember the Salvation Army, where I am in Sheffield, etc. But uh, tonight, the same, to get an, a horrible night like this, to see so many people, and to see the choir enjoying themselves. It was like when, I, when we score a goal, almost. <laughs> Although I forgot what that feels like. Anyhow, tonight, I am going to read 
from Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 17. And it's about Christmas. A number of cathedrals are saying this year we're going to make the emphasis, the truce and the silent night carol. The Archbishop of Canterbury on Christmas Day from Canterbury Cathedral, they're doing silent night and his message will be all around the peace and reconciliation that Christ can bring, joining it up with the truce. But I wonder if you think that Christianity played a role on that day or do you think that in a sense, this was a matter for humanity rather than for religion? That's a great question. I'm not sure 100 years ago, but what I would know 100 years ago is most of those people would have been brought up with Christianity and with the sense of going to Sunday school, linking in their communities. There were 43 million of the John's Gospels given to every serviceman that was recruited, which was a Bible. So there was a sense of the Christian message being understood and a recognition that on Christmas Day, the saviour of the world was born. So, of course, we can link those two together without feeling we're trying to force this in. And in the light of doing it, we're just saying Christmas can do that again. Also at the event at Crystal Palace was the great-great-grandson of the man many see as bearing much of the responsibility for World War I the German Emperor Wilhelm II. I'm here to ask you for forgiveness for what he did, for his inaction, for his action, and for his weaknesses. Philip Kirill of Prussia is a Lutheran pastor and incidentally also descended from Queen Victoria. He explains why he feels the guilt of his ancestor Kaiser Wilhelm so keenly. I have that on my heart. But not only because I'm a um, great-great-grandson, not only a, a pastor doing my job, but asking for forgiveness is just at the center of Christianity. It's uh, the center of the relationship to God, and it opens the way to a healthy relationship among human beings and among people. There is guilt all over the place. All nations kind of were like sleepwalkers going into this war. But... My great-great-grandfather kind of was the commander-in-chief. I think I, I can never really put that burden down. So if he would have said no, if he wouldn't have put his signature under the declaration of war, then Germany couldn't have gone into war. But of course, it was a really difficult system of his generals and the politicians. But still, I think if he would have had wisdom and courage and love and peace like from the Prince of Peace, let me put it this easy, he could have said, I will travel to my cousin George in England. I will travel to my cousin Nikki, Tsar Nicholas in Russia, instead of just writing letters. And I will tell him, come on, let's unite and let's just stop all this. His ancestry has made Philip Kirill very aware, not just of World War I, but also of the Christmas truce. But that's unusual among Germans, as a visit to the German Catholic Church of St Boniface in East London reveals. 
to be quite honest, I only heard about the Christmas truce yesterday when my girlfriend and I were watching a, a movie and uh, before the movie there was this ad by Sainsbury which depicted the Christmas truce and that was the first time actually I saw it and then today our priest spoke about it in, in Mass. Now it makes sense to me, I have never th heard about it before. I think my grandmother told me about it, but just briefly because she said it's a really lovely thing that happened. And when I came to England, I think I saw it on TV or something like that, and I think it's really lovely. I came to England in 1955. I came as an au pair girl for one year, and I'm still here. Well, I can't remember when I first heard about it, but I didn't learn about it in Germany. Most of the history of my country I learned here in this country. The reason why the Christmas truce is almost unknown in Germany is because World War I as a whole has virtually been obliterated from the national memory by World War II, says Rob Schaefer. The history of the Third Reich, World War II and the Holocaust forms a major part of our school curricula, for example. And even now, when Europe commemorates the centenary of World War I, here in Germany, TV is full of images of Adolf Hitler and his army still. Since the end of World War II, Germans have quarreled more with their own dirty past than any other nation. And the problem with all this quarreling and self-reflecting is that it has um, effectively severed the average German citizen's link to an earlier past, and that includes World War I. There's two numbers which are quite helpful to illustrate what I'm talking about. For Flanders in World War I, for example, there's an average of between 60,000 and 80,000 German soldiers without a known grave. We don't know exactly how many. If you look at World War II, to Russia, for example, about 800,000 to a million German soldiers without a known grave or with lost graves. So every German family now, including mine, which lost seven of its male members in World War II and five of them have still not been found. Every German family shares that fate. So um, this is the reason why people are not really, really interested in World War I. This was not our national catastrophe. People remember World War II, not World War I. For Germany and Britain, once the flurry of centenary events around the Christmas truces died down, what can we take away from it? Here are some of the people who've appeared in this programme, starting with Rob Schaefer. It's a shining episode of sanity among a very bloody chapter of our history. So this is something we should remember and it's certainly something we should tell our children about because there's a lesson to be learned in that. It's a, the lesson is that people should be friends and they rather exchange chocolate and tobacco than to shoot each other. It was a joint experience. The Christmas truth was something the Germans experienced in the same way as the English and this is something we can learn from it. It never happened again. Never happened again. There are records of some people attempting it in 1915, but the war was so different in December 1915 than it was in December 1914. The Germans first used gas just before Easter 1915. We see the civilians who join up in the summer and autumn of 1914. They start going out in 1915. They start to suffer very significant casualties in engagements such as the Battle of Luz. The war turns very nasty by that point. Emma Hanna. But, says Stephen Hancock, despite this, the Christmas truce remains deeply significant. 
one could almost look at it as a rainbow through a cloud. I mean, it was an industrial war on the scale of which was only superseded by, uh, I guess, uh, World War II. We've not had anything like it. The numbers that died, the deprivation in the trenches, pray God we never have to encounter that again. And the innocence caught up in that also was horrendous. Nevertheless, I think the Christmas Day truce was just that glimmer of hope through a cloud of doom and gloom and misery to say, you know, there is another way. If we communicate better, if we reach out, perhaps, just perhaps, uh, there's no need for all this shelling and bombing and killing. But despite that unique moment when peace broke out at Christmas 1914, the war went on for almost four more years. From my perspective today, standing here on the front line, the Christmas truce really does look like a shining episode of sanity in an otherwise bloody chapter of human history. And a hundred years later, it continues to be a source of inspiration, a sign that our shared humanity is greater than any conflict. I'm Nelifa Hedayat, and this Christmas edition of Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. Hear this program again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.